Christ near to all, the light in all, the seed sown in the hearts of all. This is the first episode of an exploration of the fundamentals of conservative Quakerism. Your guide is Henry Jason, who also hosts a series of Conservative Friends Bible Studies. Let me just uh, first say a few things about myself, who, uh, for, for those of you who do not know me, again, my name is Henry Jason. I'm a conservative friend. I'm a member of Middleton Friends Meeting in Columbiana, Ohio. Uh, in terms of my own background, I, I should say something. I'm a retired speech and language pathologist. I've worked in hospitals and schools all my life. But I have a background in languages. I had originally majored in ancient Greek and Latin, which is very important because it's helped me to be able to read the, the New Testament of the Bible, which was originally written in Koine Greek. So I have that knowledge of where I can read the uh, original language. Unfortunately, I cannot read Hebrew or Aramaic. Also, I have a degree in speech pathology, communication disorders, and also in Slavic languages and literatures, as well as a background in linguistics. I'm saying that because you'll probably hear me talk a lot about the meanings of things, the interpretations, the understandings. I think that's so important. I do not take words at face value. I always wonder what is the particular meaning behind a word? What did it mean at a particular time? What is the emotional content of it? Uh, there are many questions like that in terms of interpretation. And this is very important in terms of looking at religious and spiritual language. Uh, there's so much confusion and so much dispute over meanings of things. I should say that I uh, was originally raised as a Roman Catholic. I came to Quaker faith through reading, by chance reading, through reading books like Learning of Quakers in a book by Aldous Huxley, The Perennial Philosophy, and William James, his varieties of religious experience. Learning something about George Fox there made me say, ah, there's something here I need to learn more about. This is something I feel some deep spirituality here that spoke to me. So that even though these writings of earlier friends, the persons are dead, but what they understood and how they experienced God really spoke to me in a way I'd never read before. So one other thing about myself, I just want to say that I've never attended a seminary or school of divinity or school of religion. I, I believe some of you have, but I have never done that. And so my own uh, knowledge comes from a different perspective than from any particular school of divinity, school of religion. I have had an interest in early Christianity even before my interest in Quakerism. And it was that combination of having had read a number of things about early Christianity and then beginning to read early Quaker writings, I said, aha, there is something truly here between the faith of early friends, early Quakers, and the faith of those Christians of the first 200, 300 years. I wasn't particularly looking for that, but I, I saw it there. I felt that. As I said, I'm very interested in, in this series of talks to be directed first to other conservative friends, but also to any others, other Quakers of other types, as well as non-Quakers. I think there really is something there in terms of how 
friends have understood the Messiah and the focus on the inward Messiah, the inward Christ, as being the primary focus. So often in so many other Christian denominations, you, you have the Bible as being called the Word of God as the uh, primary touchstone of faith. But for friends, it is that inward spirit, that interior spirit of God within everyone, even if they're not aware of it, that is the focus of conservative friends as well as those of early friends. Even as I use the word Quaker or conservative Quaker, I'm reminded what Paul said about a Jew, that if I replace the word Quaker instead of Jew, I could say a Quaker is not one who is a Quaker outwardly. A true Quaker is a matter of the heart and mind in quaking before the power of God. So often people call themselves Quakers, but are they quaking? Have they really ever quaked at the power of God in terms of realizing that power of God in them? The immensity, the unknowability, the enormous source of wisdom that we can call God. All these names that we can call God, and yet they're not sufficient to be able to call God God. The name Quaker does not have any copyright on it. Anyone can call themselves Quaker. And sadly, if you look at the 19th century and all the many breakups, the schisms and continuous breakups of Quakers over the 19th century, it, there's a very sad history there. Conservative friends are basically an amalgam of those conservative friends who were left from all these breakups and changes and schisms during the uh, 19th century, along with uh, Wilburites, the followers of John Wilbur in New England Yearly Meeting, who were basically uh, excluded from year New England Yearly Meeting through a series of political moves. The, the history is important, but I think what conservative friends have tried to, to conserve is more important. That's what I hope to do in this series. I'm going to first start off with some books. I'm going to mention them because they're the source of much of what I will be saying in the next many sessions we go through. The first is a book called A Brief Synopsis of the Principles and Testimonies of the Religious Society of Friends. This was published in 1913. The previous year, there were several conservative Quaker meetings throughout the country and Canada that got together and published this short 31-page synopsis of what conservative friends believed and basically understanding what they were conserving the original friends' beliefs. It's on our website, on the ohioyearlymeeting.org website. You'll find it there. I'm going to give you all these books, but I'm not saying you should go out and read them right now. I think some of them might be a little bit overwhelming for someone who's only just come into uh, Quakerism. And they might be overwhelming because the words used may be the same that you find in other Christian denominations, but the meanings, the understandings can be very different or the focus be very different. Also, with the older language, that may be difficult since the King James Version of the 17th century is often used there. I myself did not grow up on that translation. That was a new translation for me, and I had to kind of learn how to uh, interpret that translation. But that is a short, very good book, and that's the focus of something of many things we'll go through. 
someone I really need to mention here also, uh, Robert Barclay. This is an apology for the true Christian divinity. And Robert Barclay was probably the most famous early Quaker theologian. He wrote this work originally in Latin for the educated people of his time. He then translated it a couple of years later into English. And the English comes out as an apology for the true Christian divinity. Now, I'm going to translate that into modern English. And that would be a defense of the truly Christian theology. In it, there are 15 propositions, which he goes into explaining in much more detail, over 500 and some odd pages, what's involved in these 15 propositions. Very important book. There's an abbreviated modern version of that in modern English by Dean Friday, and it's called Barclay's Apology in Modern English. It's an abbreviation. Sometimes I will quibble with his understanding of the original English, but I do want to say that his notes, his footnotes are excellent. And it was the first book I read before I went to the original English. I now also have the Latin translation, original translation to look at too. Just mentioning that, that's probably where to start with that. A second book by Robert Barclay is called A Catechism and Confession of Faith. This is a much shorter book. I think many Quakers are unaware that from the very beginning, many catechisms were published by friends. A catechism is a question and answer type of format where a basic question will be asked and then it's answered a question like, who is God or what is God? And then it's answered, and that's a catechism. What Barclay did was he answered all these 20 some odd questions by just citing scripture. And he felt that was necessary for all those Christians who are, you know, Bible-believing Christians, that they needed to see that actually what friends believe in was really there in scripture. The second part of this is something called a confession of faith. And there are 23 articles in the confession of faith, which is very similar. Uh, you'll ask, uh, these are things we believe in, you know, God, um, revelation, things like that. And he will again answer them referring to biblical quotations that emphasize that. But again, this too has been translated into modern English. It's available from Barclay Press. I should say there are quite a few catechisms. I, I never counted them. Perhaps a dozen catechisms, question and answer kinds of formats of books published by Quakers from the very first catechism that was published by founder George Fox, which was for children. If you get a chance to look at it or find it, read it, it uh, these children he was uh, writing this for <laughs> must have been geniuses. Uh, it's a very good book, but uh, um, not like a nine-year-old, much more like a 20-year-old. And right up through the beginning of the 20th century, you'll find these catechisms. There are other books too, right up again through the 20th century that friends or conservative friends would refer to. And this is one that's a reprint of Principles of Quakerism. This is from around 1904. I, I think it's anonymous. 
just called Principles of Quakerism. A modern book that we conservative use today is Traditional Quaker Christianity. This is very basic for us, along with the discipline that we have, which is, I believe, on the website as well. A couple more. This is a book by William Schuen, The True Christian's Faith and Experience, Briefly Declared. He was an early friend. This is an excellent book. And what he does is he presents the various topics, the things I will be presenting in this series, then contrasting it with other Christian denominations and how they are different and why our Quaker understandings are the right understandings. I find this book very, very valuable. I, I highly recommend it. Again, the only problem is it's written in English of the 1700s. It's actually coming out now in various uh, modern editions. I should say in reading these books myself, even though I've got a background in linguistics, so often it's the second reading that means more to me. That's where I begin to understand something. And some of these I've read more than, more than once or twice. John Wilbur, I think his writings are very hard to find, again, he was kicked out of New England Yearly Meeting actually for being too conservative. Uh, but if you see anything by John Wilbur, I would highly recommend it. Not easy to read, but very good. He was a 19th century Quaker. At some point, I might get into the history of what happened to him and how he got kicked out with his members. These people that followed him, the Wilburites and conservatives joined to become what are today's conservative friends. And, you know, today, conservative friends are only probably some 1% of all Quakers, so we're a very small group. Finally, a book called A Guide to True Peace, and this is the 1815 edition. That's the second edition. This is a modern edition of it, and the 1815 was an expanded edition. So this is very good in terms of personal change and how it was compiled by two Quakers Jansen and Backhouse, Backhouse and Jansen. I think this costs about $8 or something. I, I highly recommend this because this really says something about the personal change, the transformation that Quakers understood was essential, that internal conversion to God and how one does this in one's life. So I, I highly recommend this. Any questions regarding those books? I do have a question, Henry. Please. What strikes me is that there's been no mention of any of the writings of Fox, not just his journal, but the doctrinals and the epistles. No mention of William Penn, for example, no cross, no crown. I think Pennington wrote uh, some, some things. That was the very first generation of friends. So I, I'm curious, really, uh, this isn't a criticism of any sort, but it, to me, it's striking that you're not going back to the early Quaker message, you're going to the interpretations of it that started a little bit later. Is that uh, why I'm fair on that? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, the reason I'm doing this is because in these particular volumes, I mean, I, I can highly recommend, you know, No Cross, No Crown, George Fox's journal. I mean, you know, uh, uh, the Catechism by Isaac Pennington, the same thing, The Key by William Penn, and uh, No Cross, No Crown. I mean, all those are wonderful books, and I highly recommend them. Actually, I, I have them on a second reading list, but I chose these particular works 
because they outline these topics in this way that I'm going to be picking out those topics oh. this way. It's a little bit easier. I, there, there's so many other books I could put in, but th that would be a second expanded list. So I, I hope I answered that question, Florence. Yes, thank you. Okay, let's see. Any other questions? Let me go on. Again, one reason for doing this um, series is that I've been very aware in more recent years at looking at the, the splits, the schisms that occurred among Quakers and why did they occur and how did they occur. And it's very clear to me that it's due to various influences from the world, from other Christian denominations, from other uh, worldly philosophies, and how friends basically have never been good at passing on their understanding, their spiritual wisdom from one generation to the next. That the influences of the world, the secular world, the influences from other religions, from other philosophies have really uh, made such inroads. And I myself feel uneasy at times when I hear conservative friends espousing some of these concepts that earlier friends, early friends would have uh, disagreed with. And I think it's more out of ignorance. You know, it's been said that God has children, but he does not have grandchildren. Each generation has to learn something from that of God, the Messiah within them, the, the light, the inward light, the inner light of Christ within every human being, however we may understand that or call that, and that how it really is a calls for a conversion, a transformation of our whole mindset, our whole way of thinking. And I'll have much more to say about that. The Greek word is metanoia, which is pronounced as metanoia in English. That is a very important concept, which unfortunately gets translated into English as repentance and repent. Some 1800 years ago, a Latin, early Latin Christian writer by the name of Tertullian, he commented in one of his writings that the Latin translation, penitentia, was the wrong translation for that Greek word, which means this transformation of one's mindset, one's frame of mind, how one perceives the world, how one perceives oneself and others and God. And it's that whole transformation that's needed. It's the very beginning of the change needed to be able to approach God and how God wants us to live and act and be and speak. When I presented this book, this was put together in 1912 and published in 1913. And it was compiled by seven different conservative meetings, six in the US and one in Canada. Today, only three of those meetings are left. Ohio, Iowa, and North Carolina. The others have disappeared or merged with other Quaker meetings in the 20th century. Unfortunately, when they merged, the conservative element just eventually got totally subsumed, swallowed up, and disappeared as such. I don't think that was expected, but that's what happened. So it's, it's very important, I think, for conservative friends to be careful that you know, we really have something to say that there are others out there who learn a little bit about conservative friends uh, meetings and conservative friends beliefs 
and that there's really something godly there. There's something divine. That there's something they feel they get beyond the outward words. I don't have the quote at hand, but Isaac Pennington, in, in referring to reading the Bible, said, to paraphrase, the goal of all these words is to go beyond what words can utter. That what you find in the Bible, outwardly you have those words, inwardly there's something much deeper, something truly spiritual that is where we, are where we should be headed for. So many Christians, so many of these more literalist, fundamentalist Christian churches just stick at the literal interpretation and they never go beyond it, which is so sad. Robert Barclay and other early friends, Fox, uh, well, I think probably all of them say it in one way or another, that you must look for the spiritual meaning behind the words. Don't get stuck at the outward, the, the literal, the external, the, the first superficial meaning, that you need to look for the spiritual signification, as Robert Barclay used the word. And I think even in this word here, too, they talk about the spiritual meaning. But we'll get much more into that when we talk about Bible for early for, for modern conservative friends. I know I'll get much more into the, the role of secularism and other things too such like such as uh, syncretism. People really aren't aware of this in the United States but so often you know we could say we are of this religion or that religion but in essence we are syncretists. We really put together a multitude of beliefs and philosophies. We believe a little bit of this, a little bit of that. People aren't aware that they are really a mixture of beliefs. Early friends were very clear about that. And historically, conservative friends too felt that there needed to be a hedge there to guard against this onslaught of secularism into conserving the original beliefs. I mean, today, the onslaught is even much much more pervasive. Anyway, so in the next couple of sessions, I do want to talk about shortly something called fear of the Lord. That is a very basic concept among conservative friends, and we'll go into talking about that, as well as I've been using the words inward and outward, and you cannot begin to understand the mindset of traditional, of conservative friends and early friends without understanding what those two words, inward and outward, meant and how they were understood in terms of talking about two dimensions, two completely dimension, different dimensions of reality, of truth, of life. Today, inward and outward just mean more often have the sense of direction, moving inward, a, mo a movement or a direction. In earlier English, early modern English, it just meant something stationary, interior, inner, within, inside, exterior, worldly, secular, material, outside, superficial, literal. Uh, so we'll go much more into that because I think those, these two things, fear of the Lord, fear of God, and this understanding of these two concepts really are so important before you can begin to understand where to go in terms of understanding truth, truth with a capital T, uh, God, divine reality. I will talk a lot about repentance or metanoia. So often you hear among some Christian denominations uh, being born again. Friends have used that term. 
or the second birth, but they also use a good word and still do, regeneration. You know, that you need to be born again. You need to, the old man, the old Adam in you has to go. The new Adam has to arise, the spiritual Adam. We will talk a lot about ego or the more traditional word that you'll find in Quaker writings and other Christ, earlier Christian writings is the word self, which is ego, which is pride, arrogance. It's that part of you that needs to be subjected to God. So we'll get into that in some of our talks. Other topics will be something like mortification. What is that? Mortification, uh, another Quaker term is taking up the inward cross of Christ taking up that interior form of executing everything that is out of alignment with God within us, crucifying all those arrogant, those prideful impulses, inclinations, whatever. Of course, we'll talk about baptism, the spiritual baptism that Quakers believe in. We do not believe in water baptism. We'll talk about things like why traditional conservative friends do not accept the Trinity as a doctrine. Likewise, original sin, the doctrine of the, the Trinity only became promulgated and approved as a Christian doctrine in the fourth century, you know, 300 years after the birth and death of Jesus. And even original sin was another hundred years later. And yet they're the foundation of most of your mainline churches, as well as many of the others. Okay, let me just read one more little thing here. I'm reading something, it's an excerpt from the Journal of Edward Hicks. If you know Edward Hicks, he was a 19th century painter who painted the famous Peaceable Kingdom, actually in many variations of it. He was a cousin of Elias Hicks. Elias Hicks was primary cause of the first major split in 1828 between the Orthodox Quakers and people who who were then to be called Hicksites. He wrote this in 1847 in his journal, where he's talking about over the past 20 years, he's looking at the sources of why and where these splits occurred, first between Hicks, this Orthodox, and then within the Orthodox, between John Gurney, the Gurneyites, and the conservatives, Wilburites. It's very informative, and I just like to read this because he talks a little bit here about why this occurred in terms of the Hicksites were very much influenced by worldly deism, that philosophy of the deists, you know, where you had this God that was kind of out there, but very impersonal, and, and how the Gurneyites were much more influenced by the Anglicans and Episcopalians. And here we go. The society of friends are scattered and divided, and I fear will too soon be subdivided. He was very right. The two extremes which have produced this appear to me now to be carrying out their effect. The Orthodox friends are in two parties called Gurneyites and Wilburites. The Gurneyites are the extreme Orthodox and are preparing to amalgamate with the Episcopalians as the Episcopalians are preparing to amalgamate with the Roman Catholics. What are called Hicksite friends are in two parties, which I shall call for the purpose of explaining my views, Hicksites and Foxites. The Hicksites appear to me fully prepared to unite with the Deists and finally join the Confederacy or conspiracy to destroy the religion of Jesus in its blessed simplicity and to introduce a reign of 
reason instead of revelation. The Foxites, George Fox, the Foxites are rather the society of friends that unite or are in union with Fox, Penn, and Barclay, with which I include myself, are in a suffering state, which will be most likely to increase. The friendly Orthodox are in a similar state and condition. Now, if the extreme Orthodox or Grinites would quietly go to the Episcopalians where they properly belong, and our ultra reformers go to the Unitarians, their right place and religious friends and religious Orthodox could hold a conference and let, quote, that charity that suffereth long and is kind, end quote, sit as moderator. I think there would be but little to prevent their uniting again. Unfortunately, that never happened. But I want to bring this up because it was because of theological differences that so many of these breakups occurred in the 19th century. It had nothing to do with plain clothing, plain speech. It was all on theological points, for mostly, or subsidiaries of them. And that's why I feel it's so vital for us conservative friends to really have a solid understanding of these conservative beliefs that we are trying to conserve. I think there's something there, whether you get it from reading some book as I did accidentally, well, I don't think it was accidentally because God wanted me to do that, but, or listening to someone speak about these things or going into a silent waiting worship meeting with conservative friends and just feeling something different there. I think that's why I feel the necessity of talking about these spiritual concepts that we will be going through. There are many, I just mentioned a few, but there are many more. And also I'll even go into further things like discussing the Lord's Prayer, giving a better translation and interpretation of that, because so many rabbis, even today, Jewish rabbis might have their own personal prayers as they did in Jesus's time. Okay, I think I'll leave it at that. Questions about what we're doing or what I've said? Comments? Well, on the subject of, of groups coming together, we saw in the 60s and 70s, I think mostly, maybe starting in the 50s, the reuniting of the dual yearly meetings, the Hicksite and the Orthodox. What I have seen, you know, New England was part of, had that New York yearly meeting, United of Philadelphia and Baltimore. I think those were the four that had split. There may have been another that I don't that I'm not aware of. But the, the ones that I've seen have have I think lost some of the more orthodox parts uh, in the beliefs. It, it just may be tied in with what you were saying about some of the groups that banded together and and one group got lost in the process or in, in the development, the gradual development. Yeah. I mean, even among, you know, the other conservative meetings, Iowa and North Carolina, my own personal impression is that they are becoming much more like liberal meetings. Mm. And, you know, I fear the same thing with Ohio too, that there's such a power of that secular world out there is so powerful, you know, listening to radio, TV, there's so many evangelical pastors speaking on the radio and TV, and it's a problem. Yeah. 
and it has been. It's not a new problem. I wish, I wish we had something left from the first century. I'd love to know how someone like Paul and other early missionaries in the first century went out and converted the pagans. You know, they'd go to Jewish synagogues and try to show them that Jesus was the Messiah and that the Messiah was actually the, that spirit, that eternal spirit was also in them. But how did they get to convert so many pagans, Greeks and Romans? And they did. I'm sure it has something to do with how they lived and, and what they said. Because that's the kind of thing I think we have today. So many Americans are much more followers of this invisible secular American religion out there. It's a, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I mean, I know if you go to Japan, you'll see people who practice some Christian traditions like Christmas, but then they'll follow some Taoist and Buddhist kinds of traditions. It's a hodgepodge. They're still looking for something, but they're not really finding something that is really, really deeply there that the early friends found in other groups and other individuals with traditional conservative friends, early friends really were trying to look for were those who were tender, tender people, meaning sensitive. There was some sensitivity that was there that you know, they wanted to convert everyone, but they knew that there were some that were more searching, more uncomfortable, not finding what they were trying to get to. And they were able to explain to them that that of God in them was also in, the, in, the, in them also. My understanding is that the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues, attracted a lot of the Greeks who had, had stopped believing in the, the Greek pantheon. God-fearers. They, they were, what? God-fearers, yeah. They, they were attracted to the ethical principles of Judaism, right. but reluctant to go the whole nine yards. And Paul, I think, made inroads with them because they didn't have to go and get circumcised and they didn't have to follow every jot and tittle of the 613 commandments, but he still appealed to that ethical outlook that some of them had. I agree with that, but I also would think the kind of circumcision of the heart he was asking for, the circumcision, uh, is probably just as hard in a very different way. I mean, that is... Christ is number one in your life, that the spirit of Christ, the spirit of love, of truth is first. And making that first is... Yeah, and he had problems. Read, you know, you've read Corinthians, you know what was going on. Actually, I'll be in a Bible study this evening after this where uh, we are reading uh, 1 Corinthians right now. Actually, we're at the very end, chapter 15 uh, on the resurrection. But uh, yeah, it's, it's very obvious. You know, one thing that I think is that the culture was so different. We, in the United States, with our affluence and everything, we have so much that we think is autonomy. But back in those early days, most people, first of all, they knew their lives were short and, and could end at any moment from some disease or something. But also, they didn't have the kind of liberty that we have to come and go as we please and so on. To some extent, the Paul was able to offer them, when he talked about spiritual things, it was in a way a, an escape from a, from a world they lived in that was not a very pleasant one, that, this, that the life of the Spirit was something much more desirable to them. 
maybe preferable to the worldly life, whereas now it seems that the worldly life is more preferable. I occasionally listen to this Catholic radio station called uh, Relevant Radio. Other times I listen to evangelical radio stations. But there was a comment there made just a few weeks ago about how in Russia, in Moscow, in the last five years, they've built, they've built 300 new churches in Moscow. You know, after so many decades of communism and dialectal materialism and atheism, there is such a strong feeling still for finding something beyond that atheism that, they, that had been promulgated into them 30 years ago for many decades before. Well, the Catholic radio station was saying, oh, this, this uh, fulfilled some prophecy from some miracles at Fatima in Portugal 100 years ago. But I thought that was interesting. I mean, I had been to the Soviet Union twice studying Russian the first time and then as a delegate in a delegation of speech pathologists the second time visiting hospitals and schools. It, it just seems so remarkably different to think of that because I had seen churches that were turned into factories or warehouses and whatever. And here they're building, you know, another 300 just in the city of Moscow itself in the last five years. That's just, that's just something very different. You know, well, it's just, a, it's a, it was a surprise. So you never know about the future. Henry. Yes. I, I know we're, we're past the time now, but I think, but, um, but one thing I was thinking about, I thought about a lot is, um, some of these accounts of early of the early church and some of the actions that individuals would take or families would take like i read accounts of you know roman families would abandon their children in a field for various reasons but felt the child was dishonorable in some way or and christians would uh, come out and take these children in but and the children would be just treated like they were their own children that's a very interesting point go ahead yeah, and then, and then like there's you know I've heard of that during the plague time, you know Christian you know people would be scared of their own family member because they're they're scared they're going to get sick too, so they would show their family member the door and say well you're not welcome here anymore, and that you know that person was dying but the Christians would come out and pick that person up and bring them into their homes, completely unafraid of putting themselves at risk, but I just think about like if you were somebody watching this and you're not a Christian and you're seeing Thing this you might start to think well what does this person have that they're able to act in this kind of radical way so maybe it's also this that and i'm sure there's so many stories like this that were never written down or we don't know about let me say two things there uh what uh, you were bringing up was something uh well if you did not want a an unborn child there were three things you could do in the roman and greek world you could abort it try to abort it or when it was born in the first century, the father had the right to kill it if he wanted to, infanticide. Or you could expose it. You could leave it on the side of a road or whatever and hope that maybe in, that someone might want to have that baby. Uh, you might even leave some coin or something with it so they would take it. Unfortunately, what often would happen to that child is that someone would take it and then raise it as a slave or and they'd be treated horribly. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, also something else I just uh, that you're reminding me, I, I recently saw a, a couple of YouTubes that really touched my heart. This just came up by accident. It showed someone 
he left his house with his two girls and they were going to out to a, a supermarket, Aldi's, to do random acts of kindness. And what he would do is after someone brought their groceries to the register, he would pay for the groceries, you know, just randomly. And I mean, the people were just so shocked by these random acts of kindness. A random act of kindness is also, I think, another word for grace in terms of God giving us these favors, these unexpected little aids or helps. That's a translation of the Greek word for grace. So yes, that's a true Christian thing. That's absolutely a true Christian act. Okay, I think we're almost finished. Maybe one more question if anyone else. Well, thank you, friends. We will meet again next Henry, Oh, go ahead. I, I have a question. Uh, will you send out an email, the listing of the books that you're working from? I think I have that document already. Um, is Merritt is not here tonight, is she? The problem I have right now is uh, you're, you're all from very different directories, lists. I guess I need to speak with her, or I don't know if... Um, I, I, kept the, I kept the list of the attenders. Okay, okay good. I, unless, I think everyone's has an email there somewhere. I'm pretty sure I have this document on my computer. I'm having problems. I can't get it on to my printer at the moment, but uh, I think I can mail it. I don't think that's a problem. So, okay, well, uh, okay, I think that's about it for tonight. Thank you, friends and visitors. And if you find this useful or interesting, uh, come back in the future. Probably next week, I'll talk about fear of the Lord and more specifically, inward and outward and those dimensions. And like I said, I'll just give a short talk. I've actually talked about a bit about it already and then go into discussion and questions and uh, answers and whatnot. Okay, well, th thank you, everyone. Thanks for all your work. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, for Thank you, Henry. Christ near to all, the light in all, the seed sown in the hearts of all. This podcast on the fundamentals of Conservative Friends' understandings has been a production of Ohio Yearning Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Chip Thomas. The words to our music are from Robert Barclay, quoted from his work, The Apology for the True Christian Divinity. The words were put to music and sung by Paulette Meyer, Paulette's CDs are available at paulettemeyer.com.